Too often, we have not looked to the scriptures as our primary authority when it comes to forming our views toward immigrants and immigration. In fact, when it comes to the top factor that informs our views on the topic, more Christians cited the media than the Bible. Today, our host, Dr. Bill Petrie, will look at this very difficult subject. Too often we have not looked to the scriptures as our primary authority when it comes to forming our views toward immigrants and immigration. A LifeWay research poll commissioned by the Evangelical Immigration Table in 2015 found that just 12% of evangelicals cited the Bible as the primary influencer of their thinking about immigration. In fact, when it comes to the top factor that informs their views on the topic, more Christians cited the media than the Bible. Some might presume that is because the Bible is silent on the issue of immigration, but it is not. While the scriptures do not prescribe specific immigration policy that should govern the United States or any other nation for that matter, they are replete with stories of immigrants, with specific instructions from God to the Israelites about how to treat foreigners who came to reside in their land, and with broader principles that have clear ramifications for how contemporary followers of Jesus should interact with our immigrant neighbors. Let us look at some biblical principles. The passages of scripture most often cited by religious advocates of mass immigration and amnesty plainly do not argue for open borders. Rather, these writings generally reflect equal justice under law principles. Let's consider for a moment Leviticus chapter 19 and verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall not treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. In like manner, Exodus 22, verse 21 reads, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Dr. Stephen Steinleit, in his testimony before the U.S. House Judiciary Com Subcommittee on Immigration on May 22nd of 2007, noted that the Hebrew term for sojourn means temporary stay. A related term used in some scriptural translations is stranger. T.A. Bryant, in his Today's Dictionary of the Bible on page 596, says this word generally denotes a person from a foreign land residing in Palestine. Such persons enjoyed many privileges in common with the Jews, but still were separate from them. The relation of the Jews to strangers was regulated by special laws. We can read some of these in the book of Deuteronomy. In particular, chapter 23, verse 3, chapter 24, 
verses 14 through 21, chapter 25 and verse 25, and 26, chapter 26, verses 10 through 13 are perhaps the most notable. End of quote. Brian's Bible Dictionary defines two classes of aliens on page 29. First, those who were temporary visitors who owned no landed property. And second, those who held permanent residence without becoming citizens, such as what one reads in passages like Leviticus 22.10 and Psalms 19.12. Both classes were to enjoy, under certain conditions, the same rights as other citizens. Again, those rights amounted to equal standing under the law, or having the benefit of the rule of law. Therefore, it is biblically inaccurate to incorporate automatically and dogmatically permanent immigration into every such term. Nor is it reasonable to jump to the conclusions many on the open border side do about related passages. These activists claim that such passages mandate that a society welcome all foreigners presenting themselves. No such passages state or imply overlooking illegality committed on the part of the alien in his or her entry. Nor is there any requirement of unlimited or uncontrolled admittance of those who are members of another nation or society. Assertions like those are at a minimum a wrong reading. Such verses indicate nothing about the grounds for alien admission to ancient Israel. In fact, as Steinlight and others have noted, a fair reading of the relevant Old Testament passages makes clear that foreign residents were to comply with Israelite laws, such as Sabbath observance. Note what Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 through 11 states. It reads, you shall count for yourselves seven weeks. From the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain, you shall begin to count seven weeks. You shall keep the feast of weeks to Yahweh your God with a tribute of a free will offering of your hand, which you shall give according as Yahweh your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you in the place which Yahweh your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Did you notice the phrase, the foreigner? In addition, the law God laid down for Israel allowed legal distinctions to be drawn between native Jews and resident aliens. For instance, Deuteronomy 15 commands the remission of the debts of fellow Israelites every seven years. But of a foreigner, you may exact his debts, verse 3 of Deuteronomy 15 states. And Deuteronomy 14, Hebrews receive permission to sell or give foreigners unclean food. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21 states, 
you shall not eat of anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the foreigner living among you who is within your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Another theme stands out in the Bible. God regards borders as meaningful and important. See, for instance, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28, and Proverbs chapter 23 and verses 10 through 11. At this point, I do want to consider Deuteronomy 32 in verse 8. It reads, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Ezekiel chapter 47, verses through 13 through 23, details the promised land's boundaries. And in Numbers chapter 34, we have the description of the borders the Lord established for each tribe of Israel. Deuteronomy 19 verse 14 commands against moving a neighboring tribe's boundary stone marking a given tribe of Israel's inheritance in the promised land. Another example appears three months after the Israelites left Egypt. The base of Mount Sinai was made off limits, under penalty of death, until the people had been consecrated resident aliens who had children and settled in Israel, largely because of Israel's failure to complete the mandate to remove them, were allowed private property in Israel. That's Ezekiel chapter 47 verses 21 through 23. However, numerous times Israelites are warned against letting the aliens' pagan practices corrupt God-given moral standards. God also employed foreigners as instruments of his justice, with invasion as a curse. Just as he used the Israelites to exact justice against the pagans residing in the promised land. For example, 2 Chronicles chapter 36 describes the decline of Judah, the culmination of kingships and continual disobedience by God's people. This sad passage tells us of the Chaldean conquest of Israel and the judge, judgment meted by the Babylonian captivity. The curse in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 43 and 44 reads, The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. That curse plays out throughout all. Old Testament history. In short, the Old Testament te teaches fair treatment of resident foreigners with certain requirements of the aliens related to religious and civil legal standards. It also instructs those aliens to be assimilated 
to the Hebrew culture. Boundaries are meaningful as well. And foreign presence among the Hebrews on several occasions was a curse. Few details of immigration procedures, standards, or other policy prescriptions appear. To infer some open borders or mass amnesty mandate from what actually appears in scripture is wrong. Believers have long grasped the instruction of passages such as Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Some translations will use the word mercy instead of kindness. American University professor Daniel Driesbach has found Micah 6.8 to rank among the most cited scriptures by America's founding generation. Justice and mercy along with a godly life, are fundamental principles of biblical conduct. Justice and mercy are complementary principles. They informed the thoughts of America's founders as they fashioned a government for the new nation. Government's exercise of mercy is more challenging than its role in ensuring justice. Examples of mercy in public policy exist, for instance, granting a criminal a pardon or parole before he or she serves out their prison sentence, having proportionality for punishment of a crime. The idea is an eye for an eye rather than a life for an eye. But most such policies aim in a rifle shot fashion at individual cases, and often they involve some level of merit. U.S. immigration statutes have provided for suspending deportation in certain exceptional hardship cases. The adverse effects of not carrying out the justice due against guilty individuals are reduced somewhat by these acts limited scope, and infrequent application. When considering mercy as public policy, an important distinction must be drawn. Not every moral or ethical teaching in the Bible fits cleanly or applies equally to both individuals and societies. <clears throat> This is certainly true with justice and mercy. And Jesus Christ told the rich young man to sell his belongings and follow him. This is an individual act of obedience with merciful effect. Yet he never advocated a public policy of telling every rich person to sell everything they had and impoverish themselves so that others could be better off. From passages such as this, we may infer certain actions as appropriate by individuals and not by civil government, and vice versa. This principle accords with the idea that not every moral offense 
should necessarily be against the civil law in a particular land. For more detailed look at this concept, I would recommend Gerald R. Thompson's book, The Lawgiver, A Study of Biblical Jurisprudence. It is an outstanding book looking at this very idea. A classic teaching on mercy comes in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 31. In this passage, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. The last sentence our, our listeners here will probably recognize is the golden rule. Christ's instruction here applies to individuals, not governments. The reason is the difference between actors and agents. As an agent for members of the body politic, civil government acts on behalf of a larger group of people. Civil authorities have no resources other than what citizens entrust to them. Every obligation civil authorities take on, they do in their capacity as public agents, not personally, other than, say, as individual taxpayers themselves. In other words, these agents are delegated to weigh what obligations the body politic will take on, and their, obligation, and their decisions obligate individuals living under their jurisdiction to fulfill them. For instance, policymakers may decide to establish a program to provide for the widows and orphans of fallen military servicemen. This may be regarded as a policy on the mercy side of the equation. However, the government has just obligated individual citizens at large to fund and maintain this program. Thus, the practical consequences of civil government's mercy are borne by the citizenry. Related to this is the familiar passage about treatment of the least of these, my brothers, the hungry, the naked, the stranger, the prisoner. All of these resolve around public policy that obligates individuals to do certain things. It becomes highly prob problematic to ascribe the specific mercy ministries to a body politic. It's almost impossible to force everybody within a society, for instance, to feed all the hungry or to clothe all the poor and destitute. It invites skepticism to conclude that feeding the hungry or welcoming the stranger as a matter of public policy at public cost is implied in these passages. 
And given that immigration immigration policies pit the interests and well-being of citizens of a body politic against those of people subject to other national jurisdictions, laws that privilege foreigners, wealthy elites, and special interests over the welfare of citizens, particularly average and less fortunate members of society, are at a minimum morally obtuse. The least of these in this context are those with a claim to particular authorities' protection, not foreigners or native elites. Likewise, the notion of neighborliness illustrates the individual versus societal obligation. The Good Samaritan parable exemplifies the commandment to love one's neighbor as one loves oneself. It appears in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, where the social outcast in the story Jesus tells acts more as a true neighbor than do more outwardly upstanding characters. It shows one's investing himself in someone in need. Taking mercy is the example of loving neighbor. While principles from this example may serve in certain public policy areas, the model largely applies to individuals. At the policy level, it would be too easy for the state to demand conduct best exercised voluntarily by individuals not under compulsion. Such is not mercy, nor is it motivated by love. The same goes for the state erroneously regarding foreigners as neighbors and treating them better in certain ways than its own citizens. And while the general principles of mercy Christ mentions here may inform certain public policies, it would be wrong to jump to policies as justified or mandated here, such as the U.S. funding of foreign programs that perversely result in dependency and illegitimacy. For each national government, the least of these will be native-born sufferers, the less fortunate of its own nation, those who stand to lose if forced to compete for jobs or education, for example, with people who would immigrate from some other nation whose own civil authorities are responsible for their welfare. <clears throat> Further, in the United States, federal authorities are constrained by the U.S. Constitution, which limits their authority to certain denominated duties. It is important to note another element of justice. God brings reward and punishment to human societies this side of the final resurrection. We see this clearly when God dealt with nations before the body of Christ came into existence. Now, 
there is a dispensational element here that I will not take up today because that's not our topic. But I will say in the outset that today, in the dispensation of the grace of God, God is not dealing with nations. So these examples are all examples that I'm going to give to you as they would relate to Israel under Israel's economy. Corporate entities such as civil societies have no exists existence except in the present. And in the present, I mean in the present of the time where they're in existence. Thus, they temporarily experience consequences affecting the whole. Scripture teaches that individuals are ultimately responsible for their personal sin or righteousness. But those personal moral dimensions affect the life of the body politic as well. We read earlier Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. And I want to refresh your memory on what it said. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the children of men, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, I want you to note here, he set the bounds or the boundaries. Acts 17 verse 26 would support this. From one man he made every nation of humanity to live all over the earth, fixing the seasons of the year and the national boundaries within which they live. The Old Testament constantly illustrates the notion of dealing with corporate reward or judgment. Before the Israelites entered the promised land, Moses gathered the people and stated the corporate blessings and curses the nation would receive based on whether the people obeyed God's commands. Deuteronomy 28 spells out the blessings and curses. Verses 43 through 44 list among the Lord's curses the resident aliens rise above the natives. It states, The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Later on, God brought judgment upon the Hebrew people corporately, and other nations and kingdoms corporately, such as through the Babylonian conquest of Israel. Temporal entities cannot be rewarded or punished in the hereafter. That realm is reserved for reward or judgment of individuals. Civil government should therefore heed the lesson that public conduct carries corporately shared consequences. And I do want to state, there are going to be some nations 
such as we read in Matthew chapter 25, who will face a judgment in the hereafter. They will be judged for their policies. So this is a this is a line where it's a fine border that we walk. What responsibility does a civil government have in relation to the individual members within that government? But getting back to Christ's pronouncement to the Hebrew kingdom saints in Luke chapter 6, we see government can only exercise mercy through its agency. Compassion and mercy, when individuals exercise them, amount to their decision willingly to bear an injustice. It is merciful when a private person turns the other cheek, gives up his tunic, and gives to a beggar. However, the government cannot do any of those things. It only can obligate the members of its society to do so. A compassionate act when exercised by an individual, often becomes an injustice when compelled by civil government. The agents who are supposed to be the guardians of justice and protectors of the innocent, the least of these, the citizens or subjects of their jurisdiction. Thus, for example, writing into the U.S. Constitution a prohibition against cruel punishment. Example of this, torture, which your European governments had instituted, such as in the Spanish Inquisition or the English Star Chamber, is an appropriate adaptation of the biblical standards of mercy, freeing thieves and batterers from facing imprisonment, restitution, and accountability to society is inappropriate and not merciful. How might this concept apply in U.S. immigration policy? Let's take amnesty, for example. Forgiving foreigners for entering the country illegally or staying when their visas expire might be seen as merciful or compassionate, at least in its effect on the people gaining legal status, without having to suffer the consequences the law otherwise would require of them. However, the government as agent has acted in such a way that coerces innocent citizens and law-abiding immigrants to suffer the consequences of this amnesty. In recent amnesty proposals, more than 12 million illegal aliens have become legalized. These amnestized lawbreakers tie up the immigration bureaucracy introduced through chain migration millions of relatives into an already clogged system. They qualify for scarce public resources, such as Medicaid, welfare, and other public assistance, and the cost of all these things are borne 
by the natural American-born citizen taxpayer. Furthermore, the scale of such mercy does many Americans harm and many communities are harmed. It leads to more illegal immigration by the signal that such policies send and indeed have sent with previous amnesties and what we see taking place right now. Well, movement of people spans the Old Testament from Adam to Abraham to Moses to Ruth, no immigration policy, the terms and conditions for admission or expulsion of aliens is spelled out. Moreover, scripture provides no uniform immigration policy mandate intended to apply to every body politic throughout human history. Each instance of migration in the Old Testament is different. These movements span hundreds of years in diverse conditions. It would be foolish to assert an immigration policy for the United States based on such passages. The best Christians can do today is to identify the principles that aptly fit their particular society's circumstances. Most instances of migration in biblical history are particular to the individuals involved. For instance, God ordered Adam and Eve to flee the Garden of Eden or face certain death. This forced migration occurred because of their disobedience. God himself led certain individuals or households to move to different locations. Each move recorded in scripture helped fulfill his purpose in biblical history. None appears to have involved illegality. Each segment of the biblical narrative and the people in that historical line have a unique, specific purpose leading toward the coming of the Messiah and the subsequent spread of the gospel. More routine human movement in biblical times was governed by each particular destination. City-states had walls and gates and thereby controlled entry and exit. Much migration was temporary or nomadic. For example, traders, shepherds, and others traversed open spaces. Sojourners would move from location to location in different city-states and kingdoms to ply their trades and made a living on the move. Craftsmen would spend periods away from home hiring themselves out. At all times, the local governments or rulers held ultimate control over admission, expulsion, and the terms of stay. See, for example, passages like Nehemiah chapter 13, and in particular, verses 15 through 22. During the Israelite journey, Moses sought permission for the Hebrew people to travel into Edom. He petitioned the Edomite king in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. The king denied permission. Moses appealed 
and the king again denied entry. Edom sent its army out to enforce its borders. While this action by Edom was not hospitable, it was legitimate. The Canaanite king of Arad, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, launched a preemptive military strike against the Hebrews. That aggression resulted in the Lord's favoring Israel in a counter-strike, in which the Hebrews' army defeated Arad. In like manner, Moses petitioned the Amorite king, Sion, to pass through his territory. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 21 through 31, Sion too sent out his army, initiated combat, but lost the battle and consequently his life and his land. Israel stopped short of neighboring Ammon in verse 24 because of its fortified border. Israel likewise won possession of Bashan when its king, Og, deployed troops and engaged the Hebrews. In none of these sim or similar instances does the securing of one's border per se appear to have provoked God's wrath. Where exercising border security in a defensive posture, local kingdoms escaped punishment. Of course, forced migration occurred because of national conquest. In many of these instances, God used pagan nations as instruments of punishment. Occasions such as the Babylonian exile of Israel in 586 BC. We read of that in 2 Kings chapter 24 through chapter 25 and verse 21. These illustrate God's hand of judgment against the offending party to the Mosaic Covenant. This mass migration was unwanted by the deportees. The New Testament times involved changes of political circumstances. The independent Israelite kingdom was no more. Palestine had become conquered territory of the Roman Empire. The Jewish religious leaders seeking Jesus' political entrapment when he replied to render to Caesar one's temporal public duties. Caesar maintained local authorities with Roman governors, for instance, Pontius Pilate. The imperial regime's Pax Romana, in certain ways, eased travel and increased safety, as well as extended the privileges of Roman citizenship. Caesar Augustus ordered a census in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. People like Mary and Joseph traveled to the hometown of their lineage. The couple later fled to Egypt for protection against King Herod. The Jewish religious leaders persecuted followers of Jesus, recorded in the first several chapters of Acts. Acts chapter 8 relates that the crackdown in Jerusalem scattered believers to other parts of Judea and Samaria. After Saul 
the Pharisee persecutor became Paul, the apostle of Christ, in the first into the body of Christ, he traveled throughout the Mediterranean region from Jerusalem to Damascus, to Crete, to Athens, to Rome. His missionary journeys were an integral in spreading the faith, planting and growing churches. He is the apostle of the Gentiles, and he is the one that God gave the information as it relates to the to the body of Christ. Without him, Scripture is incomplete. <clears throat> Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, and he relied on the rights of a Roman, especially when you read Acts chapter 22, verses 25 through 29. The point here is that those subject to Roman rule citizen or not, Christian or otherwise, benefited in tangible ways, such as lawful travel within the empire. And temporal citizenship served both God's and early believers' interests, affording individuals such as Paul certain rights and privileges, despite a less than perfect or moral civil authority. Christians of the early church rendered unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's. There is no evidence here that early Christians broke any laws when crossing borders. Some people mistake examples of fleeing persecution, in particular instances in the lives of biblical characters, with a broad mandate of open borders where none exists. These examples most closely match modern refugee and asylum practices. Today, nations will accept foreigners as temporary or permanent residents, depending on the circumstances, because of warfare, natural disasters, or political or religious persecution in their homelands that makes it impossible for these people to continue residing there without exceptional danger. Perhaps the most notable example comes in Mary and Joseph's flight to Egypt. They fled King Herod's murderous decree to kill all male Hebrew children under the age of two after the Magi from the East failed to inform him who and where Jesus was. And by the way, this tells us how old Jesus was when the Magi got there. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, recounts this event in the life of the very young child Jesus. An angel warned Joseph of the danger and specified, and specified Egypt is the family's destination. Verse 15 gives the scriptural reason for that destination, which was the fulfillment of prophecy pertaining to the Messiah. Misguided, modern, misinterpretation notwithstanding, this act 
did not constitute illegal immigration. Nothing indicates that the Holy Family broke any Egyptian laws. Their intent was finding temporary humanitarian relief. They stayed only until they could return to Israel. Another example comes when David fled King Saul's attempts to kill him. The book of 1 Samuel records Saul's growing hatred of David, how David's popularity as a war hero outshone his own military reputation. The popular slogan at that time, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. In his self-imposed exile, first David sought asylum with King Achish of Gath in Philistine territory. This was hometown to David's old archenemy, Goliath. David resorted to acting insane there for safety before returning to Judah to take refuge in a cave. David fled to his former enemy's nation to seek sanctuary. His destination, maybe not the best judgment call, and apparently not specifically directed by God, but there was no illegal immigration involved, nor was he punished for any sort of illegal entry. Achish's advisors worried, for national security reasons, though, instances such as the migration of Abraham, who fled to Egypt to escape famine in Genesis 12.10 and of Jacob's entire household, invited by Pharaoh to Egypt as Joseph's family to gain relief during a famine in Genesis chapter 45 and 46, do not provide modern-day immigration or refugee policy prescriptions. They simply exemplify times in which ancestors of Christ sought humanitarian help and God provided it through those foreign countries. No illegal immigration occurred. The rulers of the receiving states were aware of the visitor's presence. Importantly, Christians believe that God is sovereign over everything. If or when, in his providence, a state denied a believer entrance into its territory, God provided another means for meeting his needs. On occasion, Scripture shows the refusal to be part of God's discipline or judgment. The answer for the true faithful is not to take matters into one's own hands. Something else should be missed. I'm sorry. Something else should not be missed. Because Abraham lied about his wife's marital status and the consequences that followed, Pharaoh ordered Abraham and Sarah, at that time called Abram and Sarai, to be deported from Egypt. That's Genesis 12, verse 20. In the circumstance of the Hebrew people residing in Egypt soured as their stay became increasingly permanent and their presence 
became an internal security threat. Settlement by invitation led to enslavement and harsh measures, such as the killing of their offspring. Therefore, instances of migration chronicled in scripture provide no sanction for open borders. These movements of people across territories generally defer to the national sovereignty of the local authorities regarding whether or not to grant entrance. The theme given the Hebrews of fairly treating aliens and sojourners resembles equal justice under law more than an admonition to take all comers without conditions. Even humanitarian migration did not trump national sovereignty as preserving law and order, even as it relates to immigration, is a duty of governing authorities and a manifestation of general blessing of all lawful residents of a jurisdiction. Additionally, Movement on the part of certain individuals and of the Hebrew people to the promised land were elements of God's carrying out his will through the affairs of men. They should not be generalized beyond their context of time, place, and actors. Absent perfectly clear direction by God, such as leading his chosen people by pillars of cloud and fire, believers after the age of Christ should default to immigration standards that particular states may enact within their delegated sovereignty. That would seem the most in keeping with the will of a God whose character includes the quality of order. Advocates for illegal immigrants like to blur moral lines. They offer up illegal aliens who purport to be Christians, yet wrapping their law-breaking in Christian terms stand at odds with the clearer teachings of Scripture. It becomes all the more curious when supposed Christian justification overlooks conduct that might be regarded as inconsistent with biblical standards. For example, purportedly Christian illegal aliens set the poor example of a criminal life often abandon their young children to grow up without a parent's daily guidance and leave their community back home without the influence of God leading them. What is the biblical position relating to those who would be immigrants? Have they the right to impose themselves on a sovereign nation and establish society? First, the biblical standard for immigrants is that they obey the laws of a nation. Obviously, this relates to abiding by a nation's decision whether or not to admit, and on what terms and conditions that admittance would come. It also includes an, an assimilationist ethic. Foreigners duly admitted into a particular society are expected to assimilate, not impose their own customs or languages, not remake the receiving society into their own image. Scripture passages, such as Deuteronomy chapter 16, 
verses 9 through 15 illustrate the biblical assimilation ethic. The Lord establishes for the Israelites the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. These were religious observances, but it was also civil law. In both cases, these laws required resident aliens to participate in the observance of these holidays. Likewise, the fourth commandment, calling for the observance of the Sabbath day, also bound the resident alien. Thus, in their public life, those aliens granted permission to reside in a nation owe a moral duty to the accepting nation to abide by its laws and assimilate to its customs, such as morally responsible individual conduct in the context, context of immigration. Second, forcing oneself on an existing nation is both unjust and unjustifiable. In other words, illegal immigration is morally wrong. Law-breaking aliens bear moral responsibility for their unlawful actions. Even desperate circumstances do not justify illegal immigration. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30 through 31 states, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods in his house. Here, a man steals food to keep from starving. Everyone can understand the desperation that led to his lawbreaking. But despite his sympathetic circumstances, the fact remains that he stole. He took what belonged to someone else. Caught for stealing, he now faced punishment. He would have to make restitution, even to the point of his own bankruptcy. Could we not make an exception for a starving man? The private owner could, but civil government cannot. The larger principles in this example involve his willfully breaking God's commandment against stealing. The man in this proverb could have looked for other lawful options to satisfy his need. He could have asked people for bread. He could have prayed and asked God to supply his need. Even this desperate man was not at liberty to take matters into his own hands with unlawful acts. Scripture does not leave him free to become a law unto himself. Even this understandable but lawless act wars against the peace of society. Civil government exists to preserve the peace. Where the government not to hold lawbreakers accountable, that laxity would send the wrong message to others who might not be in quite as dire circumstances. The foreign lawbreaker might take the government's mercy 
is lack of will to enforce its laws. In other words, the actions here of both the government and the lawbreaker have consequences for the rest of society. An example of this is the gun laws in the United States of America. If we just but enforced the laws that are already on the books, a large segment and a large number of the shootings that we have seen would not occur. But the problem has come in with a failure to enforce the law. Obeying a nation's immigration laws, and this applies to employers as well as aliens, is a practical application of the two paramount commandments, loving God and one's neighbor. It also follows Christ's directive to render unto Caesar matters in the temporal government's jurisdiction. Such obedience shows one's trust in God's promised provision and faith in his ability to meet one's needs. Jesus taught such contentment and trust in God. Almost no illegal aliens in the United States are fleeing starvation or physical danger. A Pew study by Rakesh Kakar titled Survey of Mexican Migrants, The Economic Transition to America, found that most illegal aliens quit a job in their home country in order to break U.S. immigration laws merely to make more money here. In other words, illegal immigration is at its core principally a matter of greed and envy on the majority of the illegal immigrants coming into the country. Those illegal aliens and those purported Christians who defend their illegality advocate mass amnesty and argue against the lawful enforcement of U.S. immigration laws, particularly veer far from what would seem a more sound biblical position. Illegal aliens who claim to be Christians especially would do well to own up to their responsibility under God to be content in their home nation. Instructive are such passages as 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Now there is a great gain in godliness with contentment, verse 6 reads. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 13, notes how the difficulties each person faces serve a purpose for the believer, and that purpose is conforming one's character to Christ's. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, verse 7 tells us. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18, James is writing to Israelite immigrants, and he expands on this theme and states in verses 2 through 3, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So too states James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Foreign lawbreakers envy toward Americans' material and political blessings may bring upon themselves Ionian consequences. It is through this craving, the love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, 1 Timothy 6.10 states. Violating immigration laws, just as violating other civil laws, manifests one's failure to trust God to meet his people's needs. The question each of those vocal advocates of illegal immigrants and those who have perpetrated this offense must face up to is where their true love lies. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 warns Jewish believers of exactly this. Verse 15 tells them, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. World here refers to enticing things that become objects of desire, including material, sensual, and prideful things. The point is that someone has put temporal treasures ahead of loving God. Those misplaced treasures may include breaking civil laws regulating immigration in a nation's interest in order to make more money, accumulate more material goods, and live outside the bounds of laws adopted by God's agents of justice within a certain nation. <clears throat> Likewise, apologists for immigration, law-breaking, and mass amnesty tread on hazardous ground because their words blur moral lines that are brighter than they admit. But their tactics fall under sobering light from passages such as Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Breaking immigration laws flouts God's provision for each person's well-being. Because civil authorities made those laws. And they need to obey the laws of the land that they're in. In the context of members of nations and one's neighbors are those people who share one citizenship and patriotic allegiance and sacred duty to the body politic. I would point you to our Differing Things podcast from February 19th of 2022 to see how all of this relates with each other. 
In conclusion, I believe we may fairly conclude that it displays questionable judgment to rigidly construct an immigration policy for 21st century America based on a handful of scripture passages taken out of context or from particular instances of migration spanning centuries, vastly different nations and kingdoms, wholly different circumstances, and an entirely different dispensation than the one we are currently in. Rather, carefully discerning applicable principles better fits the situation. Obeying civil laws is the normative biblical imperative for Christians. And when civil disobedience is something that becomes necessary, it is a means of last, last options. But whatever the immigration laws of a particular nation, determining the policies of how many immigrants to admit, and the terms and conditions applying to immigrants are the prerogative of the national body. Each society may set or change its nation's immigration laws. Those decisions rest within the society, and outsiders have no legitimate voice in that exercise of national sovereignty. Different places rightfully may craft laws that deal with their unique circumstances of time, place, and character. This is a matter of national sovereignty, which was delegated by God. The immigration laws of the United States have been adopted through lawful, legitimate, democratic processes. None of us may agree with every policy represented in the laws on the books, and many of us might advocate certain changes in U.S. immigration law. But this nation is blessed with a Republican process for making laws. There is a just and fair way through the political process to modify statutes. The will of the Congress is manifested in U.S. laws, represents the collective wisdom of the people's representatives, and the will of the American people as a whole as it informed lawmakers' decisions throughout the political process. This is how the consent of the governed, a solemn principle in American life, operates. As messy and unsatisfying as that at times may be. As for mass amnesty, by legalizing millions of illegal immigrants, government does not show mercy. Rather, it obligates its citizens to bear the injustices aliens have committed against the body politic. This fact stands all the clearer in light of everything we have discussed up to this point.
An instructive understanding of the temporal allegiances of each person comes from Francis Scott Key, a lawyer and the author of The Star-Spangled Banner, a Christian himself. Key explains how believers appropriately, biblically fulfill their calling as citizens of both the of both God's kingdom and the nations of man. I quote him now. Finding himself associated with numberless fellow creatures, framed with like miracle, the work of God, he has been solicitous to learn his relation to them. He is told that they are his brethren, that he is to love them, and that is to be his business to fill up the short measure of his life by doing good to them. Engaged in this work, he has perceived himself peculiarly connected with some who are brought nearer to him and therefore more within the reach of his beneficence. He has observed that he is a member of a particular social community, governed by the same laws, exercising the same privileges, and bound to the same duties. His obligations, therefore, to this community are more obvious and distinct. His own country, to which he is immediately responsible, by whose institutions he has been cherished and protected, is therefore a peculiar claim upon him. End of quote. Today, Americans find immigration policy causing their nation to suffer unnecessary consequences. Legal immigration is four times the historic average. Legal and illegal immigration are interrelated through distant relative or chain migration. Visa categories, source countries, and enabled by the ease of modern travel and communication. The failure to require adequate educational, literacy, skills, and other qualities in prospective immigrants results in the significant subsidization of immigrants by American taxpayers. The adverse effect of immigration today on the economic well-being of our most vulnerable fellow Americans, particularly those within the black community and those with a high school education or less, results in economic injustices that advantage the foreign worker over the American in the American's own nation. Mass immigration, excavated by large-scale illegal immigration, distorts the U.S. labor market and drastically inhibits the ability of the market to regulate itself into the virtuous circle that makes for a win-win situation for both labor and business owners. And both a criminal and a national security threat exist because of overly liberal immigration policies and lax enforcement of the laws on the books. And lastly, it creates a very divided society when many who come into the country 
fail to assimilate into that country. Therefore, it is time for Americans, in particular those who are Christians, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves about this country's immigration policies in the early 21st century. I hope that this edition of Differing Things has been something that you have found hopeful or helpful, and most of all, informative. Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.